Today, with all my colleagues uh, all on board, uh, Junis Pia coming through with uh, with us from the Philippines, uh, Orson Tan, Neil Vanvari, and Professor Nick Koo from Dunedin. We are all remote uh, today, but that's cool. Um, modern technology allows us to be together in one program. Interesting few weeks uh, for us since our last episode, and we picked up on two big news for us anyway. Firstly, of course, our local general election, the parliamentary election just that occurred yesterday, wherein uh, the Conservative National Party won big. Uh, and that's, it's called a blue wave by some of the newspapers. And it's very, very likely that the coalition will be formed with two parties. And this is the first time I think that it's two parties from the right. Uh, so the ACT Party uh, to the right of National and then National, which is the one of the two major parties here in New Zealand. We'll talk a little bit about that and comment about uh, our, you know, what we took off from this particular campaign particularly and what it means for foreign affairs and foreign policy of New Zealand, its defense posture and what have you. The other big item, of course, and it's all over the news, is the Israeli-Hamas conflict. And uh, we'd like to comment in particularly how what it means for us in the region here with uh, the flare-up in the Middle East, taking all the attention again of the world. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot of concern about whether spillover effects and what it means for global politics. And I'm sure over here we will one way or another feel the effects of this uh, war as well. So there you go. Uh, without further ado, uh, I'll ask my colleagues to chip in uh, while uh, you know, uh, you know, on these different uh, topics. Neil, why don't you go ahead and bring us up? So on uh, the New Zealand election, uh, a blue wall indeed, a blue wave indeed, as you said. I think going in, the polls did give us a bit of a trend that the the right block, as it were, comprising of the centre-right National Party and the Libertarian Act Party, which also sits on the right, would have the momentum to go and form the government. And New Zealand may be in for a change of government. Uh, and I think those polls were placing the National Party at about 35 34%. Um, between that and about thirty percent of the of the party vote, I think on election night one of the one, one of the first surprises of the night was National starting at about forty one percent of the party vote as the vote started coming in slowly and steadily, and that stayed pretty much consistent. I think after a hundred percent of the vote counted, preliminary results from the election commission show that National has about thirty nine percent of the party vote so far. And the difference between 2023 and 2020, which where the previous election took place, is quite stark because Labour back then won not only over half the percent of the party vote, but also over half the percent of seats in Parliament. And this, in a way, is almost a reversal of fortunes, really, because Labour has about 26% of the party vote currently. They've lost over half of its 2020 vote share even in seats regarded as part of the Labour heartland, deep in the Red Wall, as it were, seats of former prime ministers like Mount Roskill, Mount Albert in Auckland, they've also seen a sharp fall in 
support ABAP. Some of these seats have directly been taken by national. Seats like New Lynn, Mount Roskill, um, Northcote, all of these seats which were safe labor for the better part of 20, 30 years, they've all gone to national. But interestingly, the Green Party has also been doing well and taking off the Labour vote in this electorate. It, it's won Wellington Central from Labour. Mm -hmm. It's won the seat of Rongatai from Labour. So Labour's crashed across the board. Uh, the other development, apart from the fact that it's been a, a disastrous night for the Labour Party, is that the smaller minor parties have done very well, not only in the party list vote, but also in terms of winning electorates. The Green Party scheduled to have three electorate seats, which for them is a historic high. The ACT Party also won an additional electorate from the National Party. Um, so that was another development. But for me, I think the most stark development was the fact that the combined vote share for the two largest parties fell below 70% for the first time since 2005. So under New Zealand's MMP system, one of the observations was always that the two main parties have somehow managed to hold on to their fair share of the vote. Combined, that was between 80 and 72% from 2005 to 2017. If we leave 2020 apart as a bit of an aberration given the COVID effect of that election, in 2023, the combined vote share of Labour and National has gone to below 65%. I think that's a, that's a, that's a development which has not been, which we haven't seen before in New Zealand elections. Uh, and then there's also the question of who ends up being in government and how many parties we may have in government. All the votes not counted yet because the special votes still need to be counted. And given the mechanisms of MP, uh, if the right block were to lose a seat or two, then it may be the case that they might have to reach out to New Zealand first um, to try and bring them into government. Because um, right, right so now they're on... In a way, the state of affairs. Yeah, right now they're on, what, 61 out, right? Yes, they are 61 now, but historically, if you look at how the special votes work, national tends to lose seats in those special votes. So from 2008, 2017 they've lost one or more seat after all the special votes have been counted uh and if you combine that with the fact that we may see a few overhang seats yeah then the threshold for the majority also goes up uh, so so new zealand first might still be in the picture somewhere depending on how all this works out three weeks from now so you're essentially uh if there's an overhang of 123 uh, uh three more seats over so 123 then to form a government, you should have 62 seats, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. You should you should get 62 seats, and at, at 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 if that's the case right now, then they're one short. Yeah, 50 plus 11, so uh, they're they're one short. So there's still a likelihood that some coalition negotiations will be happening. If it doesn't, then the question is, will will uh, Christopher Luxon and National decide on a minimum winning? Yes, coalition yeah. wherein there's two parties, barely majority, uh, uh, just past majority, uh, just past half the seats, which is you know doable, mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're right. I think it's really quite interesting to see how many, how many seats these minor, uh, the smaller parties have picked up, right? Uh, so, uh, I mean, Greens did uh, very, very well. I think they're mostly at the expense of Labour Party, uh, mostly at the expense of Labour Party. And by the way, uh, Neil, you 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 didn't mentioned uh the the foreign minister losing his, oh yes losing her seat. oh yes oh yes yeah, I was Nanaya, go. Na, yeah go ahead go ahead well i was 
come to the Maori seats in a second, because in, 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 in our New Zealand electoral system, you have seven seats which are reserved for the voters who identify themselves as Maori, and they can, they can register on the Maori electorate. And one of the sitting MPs in one of the Maori electorates was our current foreign minister. And she wasn't running on the party list this time around. And she has lost that electorate to uh, an incoming MP from the Maori party. And the Maori party has also done really well in other Maori electorates, largely at the expense of Labour. So Labour has not only lost out to the Maori party in, in, in these Maori electorates, but also in the general electoral role, it's lost out to national, but it's also lost out in seats like Wellington Central to the Greens. Uh, and just on your point about those coalition negotiations, uh, about the minimum winning coalition between ACT and National, I think that's going to be an interesting calculation to look at, because the leader of the ACT party, David Seymour, has, has made statements in the past which are along the lines of saying that it's not going to be a confidence and supply agreement with National, it's just going to be a confidence agreement, and that the supply part of it will be negotiated bill by bill, or motion by motion in Parliament. And if that's the case, I suspect Christopher Luxon is sitting there looking at his options as well, thinking, how stable of a government is this going to be if, Dave, if that's David Seymour's intention, that you start negotiating piecemeal and have this unique sort of a, a government where ACT has a great deal of blackmail potential. So I think that may also have a role to play in how the coalition negotiation goes, goes forward from now. I think the one 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 issue I, uh, with this is is that uh, there's not a lot of option for the national party on yeah. that side. You know, I you either deal with David Seymour's act mm. or you deal with Winston Peters, yeah. New Zealand First. Both of them play hardball, yeah. uh, uh, and it'll be quite difficult. So either even if he does an oversized coalition, so to speak. Uh, who do you oversize that coalition with? New Zealand first. And yeah. they're they're going to extract their dues, uh, you know, uh, certainly. But one thing of note for us, for, for our program particularly, we're quite keen to know, how do you read going forward what this new government will be doing with regards to foreign policy, uh, policy in Asia, you know, all of that stuff? Do you, do you guys, did you guys pick up anything in this particular campaign uh where there's been any discussion about new zealand foreign policy going forward new zealand defense policy going forward um guys yeah Nick? maybe i'll just chime in here um there was a discussion about or small discussion i, I wouldn't exaggerate <laughs> it uh, about it was a question that dealt with AUKUS in the um second um, debate between the um, national and um Labour mm -hmm. uh, candidates, um, you know, the two Chris's. And um, the answers that we got were not particularly uh, illuminating. Um, and there's a few ways to, to look at this. One is that, in fact, actually it represents consensus on foreign policy, hence that it's not particularly contentious. And so I, I tend to favour that, that view. Uh, the, the other view would be that somehow... New Zealand is is uh, just isolationist, uh, but I don't I don't believe that to be the case. We have too much trade to be isolationist. Mm -hmm. uh, so having said all that, um, if you if you take the view that it represents a consensus, that's a more positive way of looking at it because my own sense is that New Zealand foreign policy, even though it wasn't discussed uh, a lot in the in the campaign, is going to be very much challenged 
by developments moving forward the next three years. Uh, and, you know, the, the people who uh, listen into our podcast will be very familiar with the challenges that face the region. And certainly New Zealand is going to be facing these questions. Uh, so, for example, one point that uh, David Seymour did talk about, uh, and this was uh, in his uh, discussions with the press prior to, uh, or rather during the election campaign, was this whole issue of raising New Zealand defense spending up to 2% of GDP. Yep. He was quite clear about this mm -hmm. in contrast to, um, you know, the national and uh, labor uh, leaders. And so this is one thing that, um, at least on the foreign affairs national security front, if, if uh, ACT does get its way, would represent an important uh, shift in New Zealand foreign policy that uh, it's fair to say does reflect the challenges that do exist in the region, right? And so there's an appropriate adjustment that needs to be done. And our alliance partner, the Australians, would, would be very interested in, in um, seeing action on this. Uh, and so this 2% defense issue could, could be something to keep a close eye on. Now, there's another second point, and I don't want to belabor this too much, but I really do think that 2023 is going to go down in history books as a year, at least on the national security front, that's quite similar to other turning points, such as in 86, 87, the break in the uh, uh, alliance between New Zealand and Australia, uh, and the US, rather. Uh, it, I think it's that important in the sense that if you look at the national security documents that came out in July and August of this year, prior to the election, these uh, stake out a very clear position uh, on uh, New Zealand foreign policy having to respond to a more challenging international environment. So, and so that's the second turning point. And the third turning point, I would even say it's 1951, the, the formation of the uh, alliance between the Australians, the Americans, and New Zealand. So I, I do think that, yes, if you actually look at the, the election itself, there wasn't a lot on foreign policy, but in terms of, you know, the fact that you just look at the wider trend of what's going on in the region and the fact that the lack of debate may actually reflect consensus. That actually tells us uh, a bit more than might appear at, at first hand. So I'll just leave it at that. I, I think for us to, to, to figure out what's Nationals' uh, view towards, especially defense, defense spending, we should go back to when the new defense policies were announced and, and even before that when when Seymour actually first came out and talked about the uh 2% defense spending Luxon Luxon was asked and he said on I think he was asked in in his uh weekly press briefing that he said that national would be behind that and he also talked about uh how he he envisioned New Zealand to be more in step with our allies in terms of sanctions on Russia and 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 dealing with the the whole new dynamics in terms of threats in the region and all that. So, uh, I I I, my sense is that national, of of all the of of the of of the two major parties, national will always tend to be the bit more hawkish one in, in this instance, and they they have been pushing to to you know, put increased investment into the New Zealand Defence Force and all that. So, I don't know. We, uh, it's, it, it really yeah. depends on who gets, who's the kingmaker, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's just interesting to note that 
uh, elections that occur in non-crisis scenarios tend to be inward-looking, inward really domestic, and I think more so in, in New Zealand than anywhere else. And, and, and language, language in campaign, language in foreign policy speeches, as we've said over and over again, is, is, is quite important in our analysis. And it's so odd that in New Zealand, and I think I've said this before in a previous episode, if you read the language of the two major parties on foreign policy, they're almost the same. In fact, they use the term that we like to criticize so much in the show, an independent foreign policy, but that they tend to want to go different directions with it. And if you go through all of the campaign materials that nationalists, in fact, released, you will see a couple of things that they want that independent foreign policy direction, but also they want to grow existing trade relationships as well as strengthen the, par the, the partnerships with New Zealand's traditional partners, such as Australia and, and the US. And they also said, I think, two to three months into the campaign that they would want the New Zealand Defense Force to be well-funded, yep. specifically for two things, uh, protection of the New Zealand EEZ, and at the same time, fulfill New Zealand's, uh, you know, contributions to global public goods like uh, maintaining law and order in the high seas and humanitarian assistance and so on. But in fact, labor is also saying the same thing, right? It's so odd to, to try to think about elections and foreign policy in New Zealand and the sort of, of, of disconnect. And also, even in sort of supposedly foreign affairs dimension to it, um, national likes lumping it as well with veteran welfare. Mm -hmm. So, so if you read the language, it's independent foreign policy, but also we want to strengthen the defense force, but also look after, and it gets lumped together with uh, the veterans that New Zealand that they need to get the timely support that they need, especially those yeah. that have been deployed in in the Middle East and elsewhere. I wonder. I wonder. You know. Uh... Because there's, like you said, uh, there's quite relatively limited talk uh, about foreign policy out loud as such. Uh, and oftentimes that's the case, right? You don't, there's no votes in foreign policy, so to speak. Yep. Uh, it's all domestic and particularly with the cost of living challenges and all the other domestic issues that comes into play. Uh, foreign policy, which is almost always quite... Uh, uh, how should I say this? Very, very far from the people, from the voters' mind, uh, is even more difficult to decipher, right? To me, it's more of where do we get the money, you know? Because with all the challenges and all the plans that uh, that the government has been trying to address, right, the issues uh, and very domestic focus, you know, this this money is gonna they'll have to find spots. And and where do you get the two percent if Seymour uh, gets his way? Traditionally, also, and uh, it's very, very interesting to 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 see that it is the smaller parties that have been pushing for a more robust uh, support of defense. You know, so I remember um, in 2017, was it when uh, when New Zealand First was part of the government with Jacinda Ardern? Uh, they were quite active in mm -hmm. pushing for more defense spending and and credit that to new zealand's first uh lobbying of that uh budget so i would say that depending on who gets to be defense minister then you know if it's a if it's david seymour you know then he you know he might be pushing 
harder for 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 some of that. But uh, overall, though, I mean, I I can't. There's no other. I I, I don't see other stuff that I can comment on you to be yeah. to be honest. You know, with regards to how do we deal with you know uh, what's our position with regards to China's application right now to CPTPP, Taiwan's application to CPTPP. Um, going forward, you know, uh, with regards to what's happening in South China Sea, you know, how are we going to position ourselves there? Uh, you know, Nick, you, you were talking yeah. about just a slight mention of AUKUS, but, yeah. you know, I mean, these things are going to come in much more uh, in the yeah. future. And I think everybody's bracing, you know, all these elections happening in Europe as well, right? And And next year, the big one, uh, in the United States, uh, I'm sure everybody's trying to find a way to decipher and read the tea leaves and prepare themselves for that. Yeah. So well, we, I, I do. You, is there any? Is there even a talk of who's going to likely be foreign affairs? No, or, not, or, not that I've heard. At least uh, in, in you know, officially, uh, what what I will say is that independent of any particular individual. And I actually think that if it gets into some type of three-party coalition that we shouldn't be surprised that, uh, you know, National will want Winston Peters to have foreign affairs or, or, or defense to get him away from the domestic portfolio. You know, keep him busy. <laughs> right? Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so that that's one part of it. And, and the other part of it is that, you know, we, we better get a consensus whether we discuss uh, these issues in a, in a election context or not, because we better get a consensus because the international environment, as we've seen, and we're, I know we're going to talk about Israel and Middle East uh, later on, but as we've seen, you know, with the you know Chinese foreign policy, Middle East, uh, Russia, the the international realm is not going away. If anything, it's getting more conflictual. Yeah. So, you know, we need a consensus on how to deal with all these national security foreign policy issues. Now, of course, one could argue that, well, the consensus is reflected in the five documents that were released prior to the election campaign. Uh, and so in that sense, if you go back to those documents, they do stake out a very concerning trend. And um, they even talk about in the national security strategy, as well as the MFAT document, they talk about initiating a national discussion on these and that's that that's an important point rather than i would even say that the consensus will come probably later i don't know but the very start is that we don't even have a proper national discussion and and uh, you know it's oftentimes happening happening in the hallways of uh, it's beltway discussion you know it's beltway discussion rather than in engaging the whole country and in the beltway within a few halls i suppose so yeah i mean if you need if you want buy-in from the new zealand public you need the new zealand you know you need bigger discussions right so this in uh, nick you pointed out the the need for a national discussion you know yeah. and we're in that national discussion is so muted yeah. even at the campaign for this big election and important election right. it's still muted which means to say that we got to break out of that that's right and it's even it, it goes beyond this whole issue even if we have a consensus at least at the kind of policymaker uh, you know um, politician level that doesn't necessarily mean much if the public won't fund the policy 
right? So that's where the discussion has to come in. There, there needs to be a yeah, that definitely. If you know, if there's no if there's no social buy-in, so to speak, yeah, uh, it will be hard to fund anything. Yep. Uh, you know, this is, strikes to me as, as odd, and I've been thinking about this for a while because we've been trying to ask ourselves, you know, why is it not happening? Why is the kind of bigger debate on this not happening? And 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 to me, there's two ways, at least on top of my head, that that why is this? So one is just the public and the policy establishment just don't care. You know, it's not a priority. It's not important to them. The second one, and I've been playing around for quite a bit, is you know, New Zealand's liberal left values are so deeply ingrained that even the right wing speaks the language and the thinking somewhat of those positioned towards the center and the left. So much so that, you know, the right in New Zealand is also sounding like the left. I, I, I so don't... far as defense and foreign affairs are concerned. So I... either they don't care or they're too left to... Do I don't. About I don't it. think that they don't care. You know, I think that there are people in New Zealand who have very strong views about what our foreign policy must look like. But the thing is, the way we look at foreign policy is like it's just another part of our politics, and that that foreign policy can be, you can have your opinion on it and be be separated on it, on that. But we forget that foreign policy, a country's foreign policy is basically representative of the country as a whole. You know. We, there's always that saying that you know domestic politics must stop at the waters, right? And and anything beyond, we shouldn't let our divisions, we shouldn't let our 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 uh, uh, political preferences and whatever domestic issues we have with each other cross beyond that. Because once you get to your board, your the your what the waters, your the borders of your waters, you're basically fa- facing the rest of the world as one single entity. And that's the thing about having a national consensus. Why are we not talking about that when we need to present a united front as one New Zealand? What do we want for our future? And and during the election, we had people writing into to the press, you know, the post and everything, you know, academics up in Auckland talking about how New New Zealand should be cutting spending and funding developmental aid to to the Pacific Islands when we can't even we don't even have mon- enough money to solve our own issues. But because the bread and butter issues, as the politicians in the elections would call it, take precedence. It's not important enough, I think, to to merit the same no, conversation no, as but cost I, of living or economics. I think that's. that's I, I, I think it's a it's it's a consequence of New Zealand feeling too safe. No, I if, agree. If, I if, think, if I think a the factor of geography there is very yeah. much at play. If, if a yeah. country feels too safe, and then the country will not see foreign policy as an important thing. Compare that to countries like. You know, Singapore, for example. Singapore always has an opinion on what its foreign policy should be. You know, no matter whether you agree or disagree with the Singapore government's domestic policies or anything, you will find most Singaporeans kind of understand what is why our projection towards the rest of the world is like that. And that's because it's also drilled into you that you have vulnerability issues, you know, you have to f- existential issues, you got to fight for your survival and all that. But which which New Zealand does not yeah. have, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, sorry, which Adam. New Zealand does not have? Yeah. I mean, this is where the last three years have really pointed out the really challenging environment that exists such that this issue, which you, you all have very well articulated, the fact that there's this preference to emphasize domestic issues, but moving forward, that simply cannot carry on yep. because the external environment has got to the point 
where it really is um, certainly in over the last 30, compared to the last 30 years, it's unprecedented. Mm -hmm. So, for example, for the first time in a very, very long time, um, well, actually probably never before, our alliance partner, the Australians, are under a coercive campaign by the Chinese. And so we can only fudge that issue so long. At some point, we have to back up the Australians or or not, right? Yeah. So they, somehow they feel so safe that there's cognitive dissonance between what's really yeah. happening outside and what New Zealand needs to do, kind of like uh, a, what the logo of this show is. One of, one of my it's friends... Deep, deep down the well. One of my friends described it as a bubble brain. She said Kiwis have bubble brains. They, they, are, they, are, they are cognitive, you know... Uh, or intellectual co cognizance just lives in a bubble of their of its own. Although one could say that in in many respects, countries that sim by job by dint of geography having a favorable geography, the default will always be toward a position that that is that that sort of inclination, which is you know let the external environment settle itself. We will, you know, uh, un until our hand is forced, then you know. Um, the, just kind of carry on with what what's worked for a long time, and so you know. It's yeah, but the reality is is that yeah. I think we do have vulnerabilities. Uh, uh, New Zealand does, and New Zealand does feel vulnerable, particularly in the economic yeah. side. So we we know that. It's just I think uh, oftentimes when we talk about foreign policy and all of this, uh, it just seems to be unidimensional. We you know, most of this discussion when we talk about foreign policy, it always stays in the the military security defense spheres, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, maybe it's part of the commentary that what, what we should do better as a country and certainly among the people who are doing, you know, the influencers and the, the, the community that, you know, observes these events to actually make and present the case that, that security is a multidimensional concept that that mm -hmm. that economics is very much part of that so the fact that if uh if global security does not provide a stable environment uh for development for growth for trade then then it will definitely affect new zealand very very quickly right so yes. it's how that story is told and i've it's just unfortunate that even in our profession, you know, uh, some people will will delineate what political science is and what international relations is as if they're two yeah. different things. I tend not to. Polit international relations is a, is a discipline within political science, mm -hmm. and and we have to understand that that these comes together: politics and economics, economics and politics, and and whatever political elites do. You know, my my old mentor. Professor Steve Chan of University of Colorado introduced me to this concept of this cardinal values uh, that any political elites need to balance, right? You have growth, <laughs> security, and stability, yeah. you know? And all of those are internet are related. They're domestic, they are international. You know, they, they, they come together, they all come together. And sometimes the discussion out there fails to bring that home to the New Zealand public. So in a way, when we think of the uh, us being lulled to a sense of safety, it's because we don't see the connection very much between that military defense sphere of uh, security 
in the economic security side and the comprehensive human security side. I think we should, you know, in our, I, we need to do a better job, definitely. And, and, and Nick, you were talking about, again, let me reiterate the documents talk about the need for these national discussions. And in these national discussions, these things have to be brought up, you know, so oftentimes the national discussion just slice up like salami slice everything, you know, yeah. it's either climate change is as if climate change is unrelated to everything else, you know, and then the military sphere, you know, like AUKUS or, or CPTPP, they're not related. Of course they are, you know, it's just that you have to see what line, what, what, what are the thread that goes through them, you know, because sometimes these discussions get to be so focused on the, on the singular detail the tree yeah. you know and forget that all each of the tree despite different types of tree are part of this whole forest ecosystem you know yeah and also just to reiterate some uh, and it's even quite complex in the sense that what some see as as a problem is also part of a solution so for example the whole issue of china's rise yes that has created a lot of these territorial disputes but also at the same time we need China's participation to solve the problems, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't think anyone would would uh, reject that. And um, the thing is getting the buy-in. And so yeah, the idea yeah, of true. concept of security being multidimensional is, is very, very real in the 21st century. Very real, all the more so, you know. I mean, the post-Cold War world, this competition between China and the United States shows us that these are really very interrelated. We cannot solve climate change if you don't have the industrialized world and these two largest polluters, the United States and China, you know, taking, you know, uh, being part of that discussion, right? And even India, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, even absolutely. India, you know, I mean, uh, 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 if they're not into this, what's the point? You know, there's always going to be a problem for climate change. It's a collective action problem. The glo the world's problem today is collective action, you know, is requires collective action. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, there's, how do we start? You know, there's a whole thing. Speaking of that, let me move to that next topic. Uh, we can speak a lot more and we, I'm sure over the course of this uh, year, uh, we will revisit some of these issues uh, with particularly uh, when we have much more clarity with the formation of this new government and who gets what office and, and what have you, we will have much more clarity and probably have more to comment on. Uh, but this next topic is, is equally important. Um, this conflagration now uh, between Israel and Hamas that threatens to blow everything up, right? So uh, the world is very, very much concerned, of course, um, as the Middle East has always been an important region in the world and has ramifications and implications across the globe, and certainly in our region. And if we even if we look at the region of the Asia-Pacific, the Indo-Asia-Pacific, as the British call it, apparently, Indo-Asia-Pacific. So that's a cool <laughs> name, I think. So so there you go. Uh, guys, uh, how do you read this? I, I feel that it's a really big concern. The whole Israeli-Hamas conflict touches on a nerve that can set off a, a whole chain of powder kegs that will affect the rest of the world, especially the Southeast Asian region. Hmm. You need to remember that the world's largest Muslim nation resides in Southeast Asia. Indonesia, although constitutionally says it's secular, 
over the past decade has become really, really religiously conservative. Uh, outside of the major urban centers of of uh, Indonesia, in towards the more rural villages and the 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 islands further away from Java, you have really. I would consider them religious extremists. Is 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 uh those Islamic preachers who are extremists, and and it it poses a problem because if if we if the whole Israeli Hamas conflict takes on this whole idea of uh Judaism versus the Arab Muslim world and the whole idea of who gets to 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 settle and 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 what's all the underlying idea of you know eradication of either or or, or ethnic genocide of one side or the other there's also going to be the religious undertone to that and then you know you're going to have have a lot of of tr- trouble handling countries like Indonesia countries like Malaysia Malaysia has you know om- unofficial relationships with Hamas but you know that they support Hamas a lot of the Hamas uh, soldiers train in Malaysia some of the mosques in Gaza were you know built using money from from donated by the Malaysian Muslims and in Malaysia you have the same problem rising Islamization the the green wave where PAS has been swooping up all these young votes in what used to be the urban centers or the urban states in Malaysia, how does that change the dynamic in, in terms of, of trying to, to make peace because the countries around them are not Muslim majorities? What would Philippines think? What would Thailand think? What would Singapore think? And if Southeast Asia becomes unstable, what, what more for Australia and, and New Zealand? Yeah, I think I think there's a uh, legitimate concern there. Uh, certainly, these alignments that are happening in the Muslim world, you know, and uh, of course there are implications from Pakistan. Yeah. Uh, uh, there are implications in India as well, Bangladesh, and needless to say, you know, all these uh, rap. You know, even China is affected. You know, in in a lot of ways. What does it mean for China's diplomacy in the region? Right. Uh, when they were trying to broker these relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia and and the fact that uh, uh, Iran right now is uh, kind of leading the charge and you know the rhetoric anyway uh, with regards to support for Hamas and and all of that and and what does it mean for American how should I say this uh, foreign policy uh, in our region right so, you you there's it's stretching the hegemon's attention mm. you know if you will right i mean i i, I read somewhere that uh, one of the biggest one likely casualty of this flare up in the middle east between israel and hamas uh and america's promise of uh you know whatever israel needs they'll they'll <laughs> they'll help uh, uh means to say that uh what happens to ukraine <laughs> You know, I mean, there's only so much attention you can give everywhere. And even as strong as the United States is, as a hegemon as it is, that's way too many fronts. 
you know that's way too many fronts and and I, I, guys chime in you well i think you're right i think europe ukraine is looking at this a bit differently compared to how the u.s might approach it given what's happening in ukraine and what's happening in europe at the moment i think there are certainly uh, sort of uh, um, the implications of this are going to reverberate even in the indo-pacific i mean you mentioned the point of pakistan earlier you already have um, opposition politicians in Pakistan pledging support to Hamas and to the Palestinians. And these are people about to stand for re-election in Pakistan. So there's, there's a domestic implication, certainly, for this. You also, we also have to remember that it wasn't so long ago that the U.S. started talking about the Abraham Accords and the normalization of Arab-Israeli relationships. You have the question of Saudi Arabia. They haven't wholeheartedly supported or condemned Hamas in public. You, because we we know recently there's been some hinting of normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Where does that go from now? I'm sure China is watching this very closely, given that China has had, has, has had a stake in the Saudi-Iran um, d- uh, relationship recently uh, and hosting a summit to make sure that they get along recently. And India, of course, is... Um, for India, a stable Middle East is geopolitically and economically very important. It gets most of its oil from the Middle East. It has long-standing relationships with not just uh, Arab nations, but also recently has cultivated and, and, and developed its relations with Israel. India was one of the first non-Arab countries to grant Palestine, Palestine full statehood in 1988. Um, and it has consistently supported that cause, while at the same time investing in its relationship with Israel. Two years ago, India and the U.S. started this new grouping called the I2U2, which was India, Israel, UAE, and the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have all those dynamics at play, and India's statement so far still perceive some kind of a strategic autonomy in a way that it's supporting the Palestinian cause, it says there's room for an independent Palestine, but also... Um, giving its unconditional support to Israel. So so I think there are important questions, certainly, for the region to answer, to see how this affects what's going on here. And then what does New Zealand do in all this? What's what's our role? We haven't haven't heard much so far, evidently enough, because we have had an election campaign going on. so that's 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 my takeaway from it that it's it's yep. it's left us with a good amount of questions uh as well as uh, some very limited answers so far new zealand's currently yeah, the, con- consulting the uh attorney general whether we can legally co- uh classify the hamas political wing as terrorists i think there's a there's in fact a lot of uh analysis that's come out that in fact the first victim of uh of the aftermath of whatever, however this turns out in, in Israel, is actually the United States Indo-Pacific strategy. And if you think about this historically, the reason why they dropped the ball in, in, in the region, in our region, is that they need to focus a lot of resources to the Middle East because the Middle East needs to be stabilized so that they have access to the one resource that America needs oil true and so there's reason to believe that there might be some recommitting of some resources to help stabilize the region again and if you're some of the countries from the indo-pacific who has been trying to build trying to anchor your security relationship and your economic relationship with with the united states there's certainly a reason to think about what happens in 2024 and and then with the upcoming u.s elections it certainly is, is is something to think about on the other hand um 
kind of security wise, you know, I think every other garrison state that we know of is going to kind of come out with a lot more bristles. Uh, you know, Israel is one of the more kind of uh, archetypal garrison states out there. High-tech fence, high-tech missile and rocket shooting technology, some of the strongest surveillance apparatuses in the world. But, you know, you got beaten by, a, <laughs> you know, a, a kind of really small at the start militia with Confederance backing all of this, all, all of these others. The other thing, of course, is um, how many more Palestinians in Gaza need to die before the other group in, in Israel steps in, uh, Hezbollah. You know, and it provides them with them them justification. Remember, the people are dying are not really members of Hamas; they're just ordinary citizens of of, of Gaza. So were the the some of the ordinary citizens of Israel. And so, when this escalates, and uh, I have a fear that it will, and I'm hoping it doesn't, um, you're looking at a very unstable uh, Middle East, which is not good for the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, there's a few very interesting points that have emerged that, you know, maybe I'll just elaborate a little bit more. I think at the macro level, I think what the situation in the Middle East is suggesting is that, you know what, um, this era of globalization that kickstarted after the end of the Cold War is now moving from a, a much more benign phase uh, in the 90s and the decade after that into a much more malign form of global globalization mm -hmm. uh, it's now mixing in both those aspects the benign and the malign and so we're getting into an evolution of the international system and it is really going to be problematic for new zealand because we have put all our eggs in the economic globalization benign basket and that's a real challenge for us what We've got to do now is to retool our foreign policy, and that's going to have to reflect many of the aspects that we've discussed in the session today. We're going to have to walk and chew gum at the same time. We're going to have to do our trading, our economics at the same time as bolstering our security. And we're not used to that. We really aren't. And so it's going to require us to kind of step up our foreign policy and have the sorts of discussion that we need to have, right? And uh, the second point is this whole issue of alliances in the 21st century, uh, it's, it's pretty clear the United States doesn't have that material power to do what it used to do during the Cold War. And so it's going to have to rely on alliance partners a lot more. Uh, and this will be reflected in the Middle East, Indo-Pacific, Europe. Uh, so, for example, issues like Ukraine, they're going to have to depend on the Europeans more. They simply can't do as much as they could before. Indo-Pacific, uh, U.S. will work with alliance partners. And in the Middle East, it's going to have to work with Israel as well as probably Saudi Arabia to deal with Iran, right? But I think what the U.S. has to do better uh, is to present the case uh, to these uh, partners that they're trying to bring on board, right? Uh, oftentimes, there's this perception that uh, America just presents its case uh very, very much from its own interests, and then let the chips lie. You find out which where where you are. So, so I think the days of cowboy diplomacy and you know pushing people harder, um, probably the U.S. has to rethink the way that they do their you know global diplomacy. That uh, 
because you need as you as you bring them as you bring all of these friends on board you do need to let the friends know what for them what's their interest at stake there you know i mean it's not just america's interest it's the world's interest i don't yeah. think that that works this United way States anymore we're going to need buy-in from the allies oh they need to big time big time because this is look this is evidence right uh, ukraine indo-pacific and now throw the monkey wrench in you know as always when you throw everything in in the middle east it's been the middle east crisis everything gets really mucked up right and june alluded to the fact that it was the same instance right that the attention all went to the middle east that they then then obama realized that they had to pivot back to asia you know so uh, how many pivot can you do you know i mean you're not playing basketball that you change you know move one into the other so you can only do so much and and now that china's more assertive uh russia is still there look what's happening the mess in africa my gosh in sub-saharan africa all the mess uh in there as well as stretching everyone neil oh it was, i was i was just thinking about the 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 just in the middle east as well the point that june made about hasbollah's hasbollah's position in all this because that also has an element of iran uh hasbollah and iran are very closely associated uh hasbollah has indicated that it might um start getting active on israel's northern border and if that were to be that adds another element of complication into it um and the other point also to consider is if um israel goes on on the offensive and starts rearm re starts rearming itself much more stringently then what do saudi arabia and iran do is, is there going to be some kind of nuclear nuclear arms race in the middle east which just inadvertently kicks off where you see a more assertive israel with no with no inhibitions whatsoever of showing its teeth um uh, in 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 the aftermath of all this and where does that move saudi arabia and certainly iran in their quest to gain nuclear weapons and where that's, does that place america then that's 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 um, where the abraham accords that you're talking about is quite interesting because the uae has signed on to it uh, bahrain has signed on to it and then saudi was in the discussion on it and and the word on the street was that part of the deal for Saudi to sign on the Abraham Accord mm. was a US-Saudi defense deal that would yes. give Saudi access to nuclear technology to the level of Iran. Yeah, yeah. So get them, get uh, them, let them catch up to Iran immediately. So that there's also that whole, that whole standard Saudi-Iran dynamic that's really be driving the, the whole conflict from the, from the background as well. Well, there's, there's another element here that I'm also interested to, to see how it plays out, which is, again, the U.S. Elections next year, we know that there is some kind of a uh, not necessarily universal agreement about what to do in relation to Ukraine across the board. That there is you know, Some Republicans have said con consistently for the last few months that they're not wholeheartedly interested to, to support Ukraine in the current form. What's the stance going to be when it comes to Israel? If this goes on... And I, I suppose what I mean as this goes on, is that tendency to be a little more hesitant at supporting Ukraine, does that also extend to Israel I, if I, this carries on into next I, year? I That's feel like Israel is a is is untouchable in American politics, no matter which side of the aisle you are. But 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 this also tells us a second thing, right? Which is the fact that if you're if you're Europe today and if you want America to carry on supporting Ukraine, 
you realize you're not fully able to push America to try and do that. You're not necessarily a pole emo- emerging in, a, in, in, in some kind of a multipolar order. You, you can't push around your big brother, as it were, um, un- unlike you would have 20, 25 years ago when you, were f- when you were forming the EU and calling it the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but that's the that that's that thing that you have to you have to deal with, right? Uh, the fact that uh, the hegemon's attention is now in many places. So June, you did bring up the uh, an analysis that says that uh, maybe one of the casualties is America's Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, how do you guys see that, uh, Nick? I mean, you 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 know, uh, how do you guys see? What should the United States do in if this drags on, you know? Uh, and and what do the countries in the region need to do? We we talk about middle power agency and all of that. Yeah. North Korea is not going to go away. More increasing cooperation with Russia, but now the attention is just so many places. Yeah. Indo Pacific becomes this whole. What what? I, where, how do you see this going in yeah. the next year? Well, one one important point to keep in mind is that. Um, this ne- does not necessarily have to be a overall negative impact on U.S. foreign policy. Now, this might su- sound surprising. In, and what I mean by that, it might actually moderate U.S. foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Because one of the issues with U.S. foreign policy is the concern that somehow they're just too hawkish in, in terms of foreign policy. And these real restraints um, on yeah. U.S. foreign policy may actually moderate and cause it to actually listen to its allies' concerns even more. Mm-hmm. And so it's not something that is strategically planned. It's in, in fact, it's it's more like the, the real world is imposing itself on U.S. foreign policy, which yeah. it's not used to. And so it will have to kind of bring it back to reality and say, that, look, it, it may not be able to focus on just one issue really of, of containing China or not containing, but rather of, of kind of uh, balancing. Managing it. Yeah, yeah, managing it. And so, you know, um, we also need a nuanced understanding of what's going on in the region. And um, you know, politics has been going on for a long time and it won't stop. And there's yeah. always this recalibration that has to occur. And, you know, the, the, the skill in being a, a great power is actually reacting. And just as the United States is facing these tests of its foreign policy, we also got to remember, at the same time, Chinese foreign policy is facing its own tests. Uh, now of course. Now, it's in a different form. Its yes. test is the fact that it's led by the CCP. That has caused a lot, co- lot, complicated its own foreign policy by the fact that it's led by Xi Jinping. Yeah, but it also, it's also showing that even China, who tried to broker this you know, better relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia, has already, actually, they have a stake. In, mm. in the stability of that region yeah. as well. You know, I mean, they have a large Muslim population. It depends on Saudi oil and Middle East oil. And, you know, Belt and Road has a lot to do with uh, with uh, Middle East and Africa and all of that. So, and if China is positioning itself as that leader of that global South, so to speak, or one of the leaders of the global South, then, you know, I mean, it now has to step up in a way to show how it can be an honest broker in global politics as well. Uh, so, which is, so which is yes, you are right. I mean, um, these big powers are being tested, right? I mean, their their diplomacy is being tested, and let's. I'm really curious to see how this all how this all pans out. And 
Yeah. So what do you see? What should we do in New Zealand? You know, where 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 are we at? You uh, know, I, with I regards to. I think before we talk about New Zealand, I actually want want to focus on Japan and South Korea because this is exact. This scenario is exactly what Japan has been so worried about in the after in the past two three years since they they decided to start building up right. If they yeah. decided to build up their military, trying to, to catch up with with uh, Japan, uh, with yeah. China's two percent, yeah, yeah, China's China's uh, uh in improvements in its in military technology and everything, and try to deal with North Korea, on the on the, uh, uh, and rely more on America in the meantime, while also recognizing that this reliance and dependence on the on American technology and American guarantee for safety. It's a very dangerous thing, you know. the 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 Jap the Japanese policy documents have always said that they need to diversify and they need to look elsewhere because there is a real risk that you know America cannot always be there for them. And lo and behold, you have an incident in the Middle East which is gonna distract America from them now. And so what I think I would yeah. sorry yeah I, I I would extend it beyond Japan and South Korea. I think you'll find that the same calculation plays out to a certain degree in New Delhi. That there is a realization that you can't necessarily always rely on American presence and American power. I mean, from a middle power perspective, I think this is just one more example that you have an overstretched hegemon, and hence the onus is on you to start engaging in more burden shifting. Yeah. And taking yeah, but more that, responsibility. But the, yeah, the difference, though, uh, between India and South Korea and Japan. Uh, is that India has this long history of strategic autonomy, yes. right? It, yeah. it developed its own defense yeah. force, uh, its different supply chain for its military and what have you. Japan does not have as much freedom of action, mm. uh, uh, and South Korea does not have as much freedom of action because they're really tied up into that U.S. alliance yeah. structure and, and American calculation with regards to how they develop their... Uh, how they develop and become more militarily independent in in that sense could be a bit more constrained by uh, American concerns, I think. Uh, but yes, the, the, uh, Orson, you did bring up a good point, and I think that is the debate within Japan, right? So, so how do you how do you reconceive of reconceive of Japan as a normal country, so to speak? Yeah. And it's always been a debate since since the end of the Second World War with the peace constitution and 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 it's quite divisive within Japan. You know, it's it it is. Uh this idea of should we, you know, st stop pretending that we have a self-defense force yeah. and just call it a, an armed um, forces yeah. or you know, so so it is a very contentious part. But I do get your point uh that the middle powers are indeed concerned. Uh that because the issue is not just about China for Japan, it's for South Korea. Much of the issue for them is, you know, their relations with Russia, their relations with North Korea. You know, uh, these are countries that have proven that they can be rogue states, and they are rogue states, and they don't necessarily have to play by the rules, which really scares and worries South Korea. And we we mentioned in the last yeah in our last episode about about the probable technological transfer that Putin will do will give to North Korea, which really worries South Korea. So it could, you know, I mean, it could spread. But but an overstretched hegemon in the, the sense of the United States also means that the constraints on Japan and South Korea might be lessened in that instance. 
not 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 yeah, there are two there are two though there yeah. two there are two there are two constraints one is the american constraint one level the other is the domestic constraint right yeah the, their political social buy-in as well yeah so it, it might be a case where where you see japan especially play to the whole na- ethno-nationalist idea that japan can be a leader in, its, in in the region of its own in terms of a defense architecture you know, it will <laughs> it will try to partner with with its neighboring countries to to create some form of security framework that's led by Japan. Hmm. Yeah, and you can do all those things at the same time, right? I mean, yep. you can be in a U.S. Yeah. alliance partner and at the same yeah, time, yeah. you know, do all those and and that's the, what the Japanese have been doing, right? The, yeah. The way I would phrase it is, if you can still recall that the George Harrison song called "The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea." You know, on the one hand, <laughs> you know, no, on the one hand, uh, on the other extreme, you're so dependent on America as your security guarantor. On the other hand, strategic autonomy, you go all out on your own with the attendant risk. I think to a large extent, middle powers and even some small states kind of try to play this, this game of between the devil and the blue sea until they're strong enough to slightly come out of the American security umbrella. And, and that's exactly, I think, the point in time that we see Japan and, and South Korea now. Yep. I think that Camp David summit was a big step in mm-hmm. trying to move towards the center of the dev, that kind of equation. Um, but it's too bad that the, that the Israel and the Ukraine war's timing is kind of throws a monkey wrench into all of this. It might not. It might be the perfect, perfect, opportunity, perfect well. opportunity for them, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For 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 the longest time, they they they've always had to 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 dance to the tune that America has been playing, you know. But now that America's attention is going to shift elsewhere again, you know, this is this, this is, is uh, Orson. You bring you bring up this uh, idea of a security uh, architecture uh, that Japan could lead, and uh, it reminded me of uh, uh, a quote from uh, Bilahari. Uh, Kausikan's book uh, on uh, Singapore uh, is not an island, his first book. And I'll read it to you. And, and, and he mentioned something about the paradox of multilateral institutions with regards to management of great powers. Let me, let me uh, quote this. Huh? He says that the paradox of multilateral institutions in the management of great power relations, simply put, is they work best when they do not work too well. <laughs> <laughs> that really sounds like the ASEAN, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and he says, that, and Bilahari continues, he says, the paradox of multilateral institutions in the management of great power relations is uh, that they work best when they don't work too well. The great powers then find them occasionally useful instruments to advance their interests, while being assured that multilateral institutions will not be able to frustrate their most vital designs. I think there's some truth to that, you know, that particularly in our region where you now have these big powers <laughs> engaging with us. Uh, if you're, if ASEAN is too strong, then it might constrain them. So they, they'll just balk. Uh, but if ASEAN is just like this, ambling along, you know, they can use it when they need it, you know. <laughs> so in a way, the funny thing about this whole thing is, is that despite the absence of the security economic structure that we have in the region, the multiplicity of these middle, uh, you know, bilateral relations and millilaterals somehow, <laughs> by fluke, has has kept the peace in the region. You know, 
by fluke you know, or by, so by like, fluke I or thought, by design. I, I thought Bill Harris probably, you know, correct by saying that it works well when it doesn't work too well. Well, I mean, it, it is better to have ASEAN than not to have ASEAN. I think yes, of agree, course. Right? Yeah. <laughs> agree, agree, totally agree, totally agree. But, you know, but at the same time, like, if, if you're if you're depending on ASEAN to solve your problems, then you got you got problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the thing is, is that we've been harping on. There are two themes uh, in the in the many episodes that we have that we've been harping on. Number one is New Zealand's quote unquote independent foreign policy, and the other one is ASEAN centrality. So, so <laughs> we've been, These we've been are talking two about the key ideas that uh, that are out there, right? Yeah. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the more we talk about ASEAN centrality, uh, uh, not that ASEAN has to be the center of everything, but uh, the discussion puts ASEAN in the middle uh, as a platform, right? As a platform. So ASEAN as a platform, you come and talk, uh, everybody comes and engage, well, that works, you know, so far. So, hey, uh, time do fly. We are slightly over an hour again. Yeah. And uh, just like to thank all our listeners for... Uh, uh, staying with us and thank you again for your support for our program uh, we will continue to revisit some of these issues I don't think today's two topics will uh, just go away very very easily and we certainly would like to follow up on on what happens with the cabinet formation here in New Zealand and the implications for New Zealand's foreign policy uh, definitely we'll do that thank you again uh, for spending the hour with us and uh, please make sure to subscribe to our program and recommend us to your friends and family and whoever cares about uh, Indo-Pacific affairs. Uh, and from he hearing from us five guys chit-chat about uh, these topics. Thank you.